everybody, and welcome to a weekend review edition of the Total Soccer Show. I am Taylor Rockwell. Joining me on the other end of the line is a man who, unlike Adairson, never gets lobbed from 40 yards out. It's Ryan Bailey. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Tay-Tay. It's more like 45 yards, right? A little bit. A little bit. Have you ever been chipped from that distance? Or more importantly, have you ever chipped someone from that distance? Uh, I believe I may have been the chipper, not the chippy at some ah. point. Yeah, I can't quite recall. But I was uh, present for one of the famous chips of all time, David Beckham's 50-yard lob uh, against Wimbledon on the first day of the 96-97 season at Selhurst Park. Uh, that filled me up with uh, with all my chip uh, um, <laughs> needs for the rest <laughs> of my life, I think. Although one thing You've that's met never... your chip quarter? Do you know what happened? Um, that was Neil Sullivan, the Wimbledon goalkeeper, who got chipped that day. And the very next week, we played at Newcastle, Wimbledon did, and he got chipped by Alan Shearer too. Quite <gasps> two weeks in a row. Harsh. All right. We, we have to talk Premier League. We have to talk DFB Pokal Final. We're going to talk La Liga and some Serie A. But I want to stick with this for a moment. Let's start with, <laughs> if you get chipped twice in two weeks, what does that say about you? Is it that you are way too off your line? Are you not paying attention? Can you just not handle shots from distance? What's going on, Ryan? It's uh, Some people never learn, I suppose, is the uh, thing. Or maybe it's that everyone was watching Match of the Day on the first weekend mm-hmm. and thought, oh, I think I can make note of this keeper who comes <laughs> off his line far too often, and I might try it. And that's what Alan Shearer did uh, the very next week. But Neil Sullivan, that's the goalkeeper, went on for, to strength to strength. He went to represent Scotland at the 98 World Cup. He went on to a Ooh. dazzling career with Tottenham Hotspur. So it didn't exactly impede him too much. See, I actually said that in jest about like being chipped twice, like just assuming it's sort of a fluke. But then I remember when David De Gea first came to Manchester United and kind of spilled that first, like one of the first shots that was from distance. Teams kept doing it and it kept sort of happening. So maybe there is something to be said for you watch some footage. You see a player get chipped. You think, I'm going to try that again. And maybe it comes off. My other question for you about the David Beckham chip specifically, uh, Daryl and I, I think you can still find the footage somewhere. I'm sure it exists on YouTube. When we were doing play by play for the Richmond Kickers, in maybe their final season in USL Championship, uh, they're losing a game, they push numbers forward, and their goalkeeper gets uh, uh, chipped from midfield. Like, really, really badly chipped. And I think because it was not, it happened to the kickers, and we were sort of up for it, we felt like, oh, they're playing their way back into it, and then that happened. People gave us so much grief on the commentary because our, our call of this amazing goal was sort of like, oh, he, oh wow, that went in. Wow, that that went in. Like it was very low key for you in the stands when David Beckham scores that goal. Is the reaction like, okay, I got to give it up? That was really good. Is it stunned silence? Is it fury? Is it somewhere in between? What was it for you? Uh, it was frustration because that was the third goal of the day. It was three 0 at that point, and uh, we're sitting there on the first day of the season, thinking this is going to be a long one, everybody. But uh, <laughs> in the end, it was our best Premier League season. We finished, I think, seventh that season and got to both uh, cup semifinals. So there hey, you go. All right. Who knew? Who knew that would be the precursor for such a great season? There you go. Well, maybe one day we'll get that game back in the Premier League. Uh, you, you all have some work to do. But we will likely very much continue to see Manchester United in the Premier League. I don't think relegation is is so much of a threat for them these days. Uh, they trounce Bournemouth. They let Bournemouth score some goals. Bournemouth then uh, have a couple opportunities called back for offside. So this one could have finished 5-4, which maybe says something about the defense. But mm. instead, Ryan, let's talk about Manchester United's attack. And let's specifically talk about Mason Greenwood. I think we've talked about him a little bit, but I'm wondering for you as an England fan how excited you are to see him i think he's outperforming his expected goals by by like four like he is like 2.6 expected goals i think he has eight goals so far so uh decent rate of scoring there for mason greenwood yeah, I was reading on The Athletic this morning about the, the way he's exceeding his XG targets. Uh, I may does... have been reading that article too. There we go. <laughs> Great minds think alike. And what a wonderful website to read your content on, my I add. Um, yeah, he, he's quite something. I think there's a lot of players who come through when they're young and they show a lot of promise like this, but he just seems like the real deal, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Both feet, just such good instincts, really good on the counter-attack. You must, as a Man United fan, be very, very excited by him coming through. And there's, I mean, there's a quote here from August 2019 I'm looking at from Ole Gunnar who says, um, he's talking about Rashford and Martial being, whether they're the most natural finishers in the squad. And Solskjaer says, they've still got a way to go because Mason is more of a natural finisher than both of them. Woof. I mean, you can see it there because because my my knock on on Marcus Rashford has long been that he takes sort of low percentage shots, and I think there are times when he he feels like he has to get the job done himself. And to be fair, there are times when that has been the case, mm. and I do think he can be a little bit profligate at times. I think the same goes for Anthony Martial. So yeah, maybe just how clinical Mason Greenwood has been 
is why he stands out that much more compared to those two. I did hear uh, the BBC Football Daily podcast, I think, trying to make the argument, not necessarily trying to make the argument, but pointing, but pointing out that that front three has more goals this season in all competitions than the front three of Liverpool. Yeah. And then they had the kind of fake conversation of, does that mean this front three is, is better? And the immediate response to that was, most of those goals from Mason Greenwood are in the Europa League. you got to knock that one off a little bit. So I wouldn't go quite that far with it yet. But it certainly does have me feeling more excited about it as a Manchester United fan. Mm. For you, Ryan, I think we've talked about this before. I'm going to ask it again. Does this remain a sort of appointment viewing uh, Manchester United team right now? Like, will you continue to watch them because they are so exciting going forward and then maybe a little bit uh, questionable at the back? Yeah, I think that's a pretty good assessment, but still not that bad at the back. I mean, defensively in the league, they can't be... I don't know where they rank, but I would have thought top half for defending... Yeah, off the top of my head true. i mean this this is just a team that's very very entertaining it's a team that you know who, who in the 90s back when david beckham was chipping people from the halfway line were renowned for being entertaining and attacking and counter-attacking and you know nice clean build-ups and rockets from outside the box and such and that's what we're getting again here i think i think we're going to see some mooga hats at old trafford when fans are allowed back in make united great again hats you know some nice red baseball caps with mooga written on them perhaps or maybe some cug hats keep united great hats once once you know the ball is rolling what do you think should we get some merch opportunities rolling here i would maybe be okay with that if it were a black hat i don't think i'm ever going to wear a red hat again for the rest of my life i feel (laughs) like that's where i am with it anytime i see a red hat i have i do own a red hat it's i got it when i was like 14 from like a diner in delaware that i've kept my whole life i have another one from alaska from when my parents live there i will never wear either of those red hats again so is it because uh, you did you buy it when you're 14 because of fred durst be honest I think I think I bought it because my my cool uncle bought one, and I was like, I'm gonna wear the same hat and be cool as well. Uh, Very but nice. that uncle was Fred Durst. That is true. So uh, I think yeah, I should have brought point, that out earlier. The silly point I'm making with hats mm-hmm. here is that the the good times seem to be coming back for Manchester United, don't yes. they? And I think as a fan, you must be very excited by that. And um, it it just seems like. There's there's a, a something of a dynasty starting and something of a vindication for sticking with Solskjaer to this point, is it not? Yeah, I mean it's it's strange because I was uh, ambivalent at best about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, especially this season. I I was not sure he should have been given. I was actually fairly sure that he should not have been given the permanent deal when he was. It didn't seem like there were going to be any sort of dramatic suitors for him, so they could have waited. It does seem like he's figured it out, and I made the argument with Daryl last week that. It also seems like he's figured them out in terms of Bruno is there, Paul Pogba is there, the front three are scoring goals. It does feel like just go do what you guys need to do and we'll figure it out. Like we'll have a basic game plan and we'll just make them things happen. And I think Bruno is obviously fundamental to that approach. Uh, there was the tweet from Kevin Egan. Is there any club in the world that wouldn't have Bruno Fernandez as a mm. starter? I genuinely think he'd improve every team with Bayern, the only possible exception. So first off, hurtful because Bruno would make Bayern better, <laughs> although I'm not actually sure he would. Uh, Ryan, what did you make of that tweet? Well, I actually replied to that tweet and said, I agree mostly, but I would shout at Manchester City, uh, whether that Bruno Fernandes would play the KDB role or maybe the Gundogan role. I think he might not be automatically improving that team necessarily. But otherwise, it's a good tweet. And I think, do, do, we, do we attribute this to this whole Manchester United situation being the Bruno Fernandes revolution or the Solskjaer revolution? Is, he does seem to be the turning point in a way, doesn't he? Yes, uh, I actually I am of the mind that it's really it's Paul Pogba coming back, and it's certainly Marcus Rashford coming mm-hmm. back as well, having both of them back from injury. But I think where I am with with it being sort of a combination of Pogba and Bruno Fernandez is I think like the, one of the reasons why I think Paul Pogba was ready to leave was because it didn't seem like the club were trying to match his aspirations, and it didn't seem like they were surrounding him with the personnel that would allow those aspirations to be met. Yeah. And Bruno coming in. He does feel like, you know, I think you, your argument about City is valid. I think the point about Bayern is too. You could probably make the same argument about Liverpool, but those teams aside, he does make this team instantly better to the point where I think you can consider him world-class, such as that designation is. I think Paul Pogba is on that list as well. Maybe Marcus Rashford. And suddenly, I think you just have more players of that quality than you've had at Manchester United, and that they're all sort of in positions to succeed mm. is pretty telling to me. I think it's amazing how important Nemanja Matic has become to the extent that they re-signed him until 2023 and I think him being that sort of defensive rock having the vision he has allows Pogba allows Bruno to do the things they do 
Well, I think actually Matic and Fernandez were the two players I would highlight from this game just for the way they made all the right passes. Yep. Uh, uh, both both were excellent with distribution. And, you know, we know Bruno's got an engine on him. We know that he's you know, lovely long-range passing and it just makes everything look easy. And I think that they'll n- not necessarily the same um, compliment played to Matic, but he was very good with the way he passed around in this game. I've got a question for you, Taylor. Yes, sir. Paul Scholes, the oracle, the man I, whose oh, no. opinion I trust because he's probably the Premier League's greatest ever player. Um, he thinks that Manchester United only need a centre forward and perhaps a centre back to go next to Harry Maguire to be like a perfect team, to be right back up there in the mixer. So he concedes that they can't compete financially uh, uh, with, with the likes of Man City, but I don't know why they shouldn't, but hey. Yep. Um, what do you think about that? Maybe just a centre forward and a centre back. And he also added uh, when he was being talked to, I think on Sky Sports, saying like, why didn't Manchester United throw everything at getting Erling Haaland? Could, could you imagine if this team had Erling Haaland right now? Well, except except then what do you do with Anthony Martial? And that is the, like, not to say that Anthony Martial is this, like, immovable object that has to start every single game. It's it's just, I feel like it's easy to throw out, like, they should have got this guy, they should have got that guy. But then right. you look at how do they blend in and who moves where. And let's say you move Martial back onto the wing, then that means you have to drop Mason Greenwood so you don't get those performances. So it is a bit of a, who are you going to change and how? In some ways, I think that means that Odie and Agallo has been like the perfect like deputizing forward that Manchester United could have brought in. But with that said, yes, I would enjoy them a lot with Erling Holland in there. Uh, I don't know how much he would have enjoyed it initially. I think he would certainly be enjoying it a lot more now. I also think that that kind of complaint about the defense is pretty consistent. And there comes a point in like listening to a bunch of different podcasts and hearing a bunch of different pundits in which like you stop hearing the detail. You, you stop hearing like Eric Bailly does this or doesn't do that or needs to cover this more or Victor Lindelof has trouble with this or can't deal with that. And instead mm. it's like, ah, oh, some of the decision making I wonder about, maybe they need another center back. And then it kind of grows from there into like, oh, well, you know, they're a center back away. Yeah, they just need that one center back. And you stop hearing the analysis. And I personally have seen moments of Lindelof like maybe stepping out a bit more Eric Bailly certainly doing that as well yeah but I haven't seen enough to make me feel like they are definitely the problem I think I remain convinced that depth will be the problem for Manchester United that this fully fit team is great but if you lose Pogba again certainly if you lose Bruno if you lose Marcus Rashford that's probably where the depth issues come in and that's where maybe where you do Marcia move Martial back so yeah. I guess all that said let's get let's get uh, Erling Holland in there let's get Kai Havertz in there how about that I think that sounds good. And I will add that I don't think Erling Haaland would have gone to Manchester United, given his father and family history with Roy Keane and with Manchester United. Seems unlikely, but hey, one can dream. Hey, don't accuse people of faking, tearing their ACLs, and things don't happen. Just (laughs) kidding. That Roy Keane action is defensible. Uh, Sorry, Alf. Uh, Ryan, let's move on to happier topics that don't involve people's careers being ruined. Uh, We do have Mason Greenwood scoring goals. We have Marcus Rashford, uh, still a youngster, not quite as young as, say, Mason Greenwood or Phil Foden. Mm. Uh, But you, I'm guessing, as an England fan, are probably watching some of these games and feeling uh, optimistic, dare I say. I think uh, this weekend alone, there were 25 goals in the Premier League, 12 of them scored by English players. Mm. It seems as though English players are finding their form, performing very well. I'm wondering for you personally, when you're watching the Premier League, who are those young Englishmen that you maybe tend to focus on, tend to pay attention to more, tend to have optimistic expectations for going forward? Oh, there's a few, as you say. And I'm definitely getting the fizz about um, about England's chances going forward. Maybe you're 2020. One, as I think we're calling it now, uh, mm-hmm. just after, just before the Premier League it's came, twenty twenty plus one, I believe. <laughs> there you go. That sounds good. Uh, Gareth Southgate, Gareth Southgate said just before the Premier League restarted that uh, the delayed European European Championships would work to England's advantage because there's another you know year for these young players to have experience under their under their belts, and I think that's completely accurate. And we've seen even in this restart some players come through, and there's a lot of talk about this sort of quartet of attacking players you've got Mason Greenwood obviously 18 years old Bukayo Saka at Arsenal who's doing pretty good things on the left he's 18 he just got a new contract and got got his first Premier League goal um, this past weekend Uh, Phil Foden who obviously is a phenomenal player and is proving his worth at the moment but will he get those minutes when City start playing the more important games next season who's to say and uh, Jadon Sancho who obviously has been doing pretty good things in the Bundesliga so those four are getting a lot of attention but if you look beyond that Taylor there's so much more exciting players I mean even someone like Curtis Jones at Liverpool who we've seen do good things in the Cups this season uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold he's, he's, he's 21 Mason Mount Marcus Rashford Wamba Sucker James Madison 
uh, they're all mm-hmm. 23 or under. They're all young players. They are all likely to become England regulars. And I could see every one of those players playing a role for England next summer. That gets me excited. More weekend reviewing still to be done. But first, we have a new sponsor alert. You can sound the klaxon. Today's episode is brought to you by Artifact. Artifact is George Croatia's new company, George formerly of The Athletic and Howler. Artifact creates personal podcasts for you on whatever subject you want. You just head to heyartifact.com and tell Artifact who or what the subject of the Artifact should be. You invite uh, interview guests, and Artifact does the rest from scheduling to hosting interviews over the phone and then delivering a polished edit that wouldn't sound out of place on NPR. We commissioned Artifact to create two episodes for us, one about Daryl's diagnosis and treatment, the second about the TSS origin story. Here's a clip from that first recording featuring Daryl and his wife Shannon. You won't hear Shannon in this clip. Uh, this is Daryl telling his story at heyartifact.com slash Daryl. I remember it was a, visit, a physician's assistant, right? After I got the CT scan, there was a short wait, you know, while they look at the results. And I saw him through a little window as he was about to enter my hospital room. I saw him take a deep breath. And I remember thinking, oh, this isn't going to be good. To hear the rest of that story, as I said, you visit heyartifact.com slash Daryl. And if you want to commission one of your own, either for you or for someone you care about, go to heyartifact.com and you can get $40 off your first artifact with the code TSS. That's heyartifact.com and code TSS to get $40 off your first artifact with the code TSS. Thank you very much to Artifact for sponsoring this episode. We're very excited to have them on board. We're very excited to see what comes next with George. And with that said, let's get back to me and Ryan. One name I would like to, to spotlight for a moment uh, scores a goal this weekend as Arsenal uh, hand wolves a 2 0 loss. Mm. That would be Bukayo Saka. Uh, he gets the opening goal. Lacazette gets the, the, the second to secure the win. Uh, Arsenal stays seventh. Wolves drop some points there. Uh, good for Lacazette to get on the score sheet after I had some questions about his efficiency in front of goal. But for Saka to score, not that surprising given how good he has been uh, in the attack for Arsenal, especially yeah. of late, uh, having signed that new contract. He can play as a left winger, can play as a right winger if he needs to, can also be a left back. Yeah. Do you have any idea as to where he fits in best for what Gareth Southgate wants from his England team? I suppose it's a wide left player. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's difficult because the, England traditionally have never really had players who are good with their left foot, apart from maybe like Glenn Hoddle, who was good with both feet and was largely ignored by England. But hey, that's another story for another time. But now we've got several players... Mason Greenwood, I mean, Sancho's pretty good with his left foot. He's not right left foot dominant or anything. Phil Foden's good with his left foot. Sarko's left foot dominant. And there's loads of these players who are on the left side who could do a really good job. So there's, there's, a, there's difficulty here. And, I mean, maybe this looking at this crop of players, it suits better to sort of a three at the back with some wide wide um wide attackers as well because i'm thinking maybe it's harry harry Maguire in the middle and a couple of fullbacks either side of him makes sense with this crop um and you know southgate has done the back three thing obviously uh to good effect so i'm to, to answer your original question wide left i'd say for saka <laughs> well wide left in that area just go do things yeah but you do have things. saka scoring you have Nketiah starting uh we had uh denny Sabayos, not english but still very exciting for arsenal so i think it does seem like we have arsenal continuing that form maybe Mikel Arteta has figured some things out there mm-hmm. uh one quick uh, one other english game to touch on really quickly would be chelsea with the 3-0 win over watford christian pulisic plays again doesn't get on the score sheet but ross barkley does so we have more englishmen scoring goals uh will they ever be stopped i don't know ryan anything you wanted to point out uh, or note about this chelsea win over watford um frank lampard still doing frank lampard things congratulations not much else <laughs> from me on that one um did we want to touch on the manchester city surprise result before we move on from the premier league i guess so i think the thing that i struggle with at this point in the season is like like, do we put any stock into that? Daryl and I had that same conversation about Man City's sort of statement win over Liverpool. And I think we came away from that with the answer being yes, that that felt like Pep Guardiola wanted to show Jurgen Klopp, yes, you won the title, but you didn't beat us and we're coming for you next season. And it mm. seemed like City, like the City players across the board felt the same and responded the same. And then you have this this loss, these points dropped, and as we uh, said in the intro, it comes about from City moving the ball from right to left, left to right, right to left, then giving the ball away and just getting thwacked with a lobbed goal from 45 yards out. Yeah. I don't really know what to make of that, other than that maybe they really raised their game to beat Liverpool. 
And then after that, new like okay, we're secured a Champions League like a Champions League place, assuming our appeal goes well, if it does. Uh, but we've done what we can. There's not much else to do. So oh well, is that too easy? Am I letting them off too lightly? I think there's definitely an element of that, and you can understand the psychology behind that argument. But I think you also got to give credit to Southampton on this because they True. were so well organized in that block four four two. This is kind of a classic Manchester City loss because I know they've had a few more losses than expected this season. Was it nine this season? And they're not very good. Haven't been very good on the road, particularly lately. But the kind of teams that Manchester City lost to during their pomp of the last few seasons has been your middling to low teams who are just well organized and who can limit them to just pumping crosses into the box. I think Mm -hmm. of Newcastle, for example, when they've taken points off of them in previous seasons. And that's kind of what Southampton did here. They were a very well-organized team here. They were a long, long, long way from the team that lost 9-0 to Leicester. And bear in mind, it's a lot of the same players and the same manager. So it's pretty impressive. And I think the, the key is when you can force Man City to go wide and pump in fairly aimless crosses, that's when they get in trouble. So I don't know if you're like me when it comes to watching games, but if I'm, if I sort of know a decent amount of both, about both teams, I tend to either look at my phone during the game, but I try not to do that. Uh, but in terms of actually figuring out what's happened, I tend to go with who did I naturally gravitate towards in this game? Who did I like want to write a tweet about? Like, oh, I can't believe he did that, or I can't believe how good that tackle was. Was there any player for Southampton in watching this game that sort of stood out to you that you found yourself drawn to, uh, either because they scored the goal or because of just like the defensive work, the organizing they did, or just individual performances, uh, whatever they may be. Uh, uh, apart from Che Adams for the obvious, the aforementioned uh, catching uh, yep. Edison out, I think probably the back line in general, I think the Bednarek Stevens uh, centre-back did very well, very solid in this one. Um, Walker-Peters, Carl Walker-Peters on the right, I thought was excellent as well. But I, I don't know, it just seemed like a very solid team effort and just one of those ones where they've just be, had had it really coached into them they've had it, the coach of the life out of them for this one and um it, it paid off and i think that timed well with manchester city's aforementioned drop off from that um we'll show you game yeah. against liverpool <laughs> exactly i am still sad and long for the days of there being only one kyle walker and both of them played at uh tottenham but <laughs> it's the world we live in now it's the world we live in now uh that is our uh premier league roundup for this weekend let's move to the Bundesliga, but not the Bundesliga. Let's move to the DFB Pokal final, uh, where we have Bayern Munich. Ryan, I know this is going to come as a surprise. They won silverware. I know it's a rare thing for them, but they win the DFB Pokal. They win 4-2. And the question for you is, was this Bayern being like typical, excellent Bayern? Was this Bayern Leverkusen maybe handing the, them uh, the silverware or some combination of the two? It seemed to me like Bayern Munich were like, hey, hey, Leverkusen, we've got some gifts for you here. Would you like them? And Leverkusen went, no, I don't need any gifts. No, thanks. You can put some, uh, if you, are you going to put some dinner on the plate for me? No, I don't think so. That was what I saw from this game, basically. Yes, Bayern were pretty good and they had a pretty good first mm. half in this game. But there was just, there was a lot that Bayern Leverkusen didn't take advantage of. And that Kevin Folland uh, miss to end all misses maybe sums it up here, doesn't it? Can you talk us through what happens there? Talk us through any of the other moments that you felt like maybe should have been converted, should have made this game more contested than it was. (laughs) Just uh, Kevin Volland, basically. Uh, I think Americans call it a whiff, where you do not get any contact with the Uh ball whatsoever, which one does not expect from a professional six yards from the net. Um, But, I mean, it it just seems like Peter Bosch um, set up incorrectly for this game as well with starting with uh, Kai Havertz uh, up front on his own just seemed like not taking advantage of Kai Havertz and he didn't get any service he needs to be sort of the number 10 player tucked behind Kevin Volland and that's kind of how they did they switched it up for the for the second half but it seemed a bit too little too late and I, I thought that got them off on the wrong foot certainly and it just seemed like there are a few moments where you know Leverkusen could have taken advantage of some sloppiness on on Bayern's behalf and they didn't but that said Bayern Munich going to Bayern Munich, huh? Bayern Munich are going to Bayern Munich. And I think like Bayern Munich would Bayern Munich with Kai Havertz as that Robert Lewandowski uh, replacement. I don't think that will happen. I asked Manuel Feitz about that one. He doesn't think he would work that well as a number nine long term. He probably does fit into the number 10 spot, as you said. Yeah. But I, I highlight that just to say that there were moments in this game when if it were like Kai Havertz leading the attack for Bayern Munich and Bayern Munich doing some of the things that Leverkusen did, I think it ends in a goal, whereas with Leverkusen it ends in a turnover or a shot wide, just because 
you don't have the numbers committed forward into the attack. And when you do get a couple numbers in there, they're obviously not going to be up to the level of Bayern Munich would be in terms of the talent around that ball. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, you had Kai Havertz trying to make a lot happen. And even when he does hold the ball up and plays a, a teammate in and then makes it like a supporting run, a couple different times, uh, especially there's one in the second half with Leon Bailey, where he has two different options there and Leon Bailey instead chooses to shoot. And I think about another team, if it were Bayern Munich, and I think that ball gets like played across to Kai Havertz, who probably squares it back, and then it's a tap-in. And I think that's the sort of luxury of Bayern Munich compared to Bayer Leverkusen. Mm. I also think you're absolutely right that he was pretty isolated, especially in that first half, and I don't think really enjoyed much of his day getting knocked off the ball, losing 50-50 challenges, and when the times he did bring it down, generally speaking, being surrounded by at least two Bayern players automatically. Yeah, yeah, not not a great one for him, not a great one for a few few Leverkusen players in this one. But it does it did feel like it was an entertaining game, definitely for the neutral. It felt like it could have been like six or seven all this game. But I looked up the shots and it was seven shots to Leverkusen, seventeen for Bayern, which surprised me. I Oof. didn't know the disparity was that much. But um yeah, I, I think maybe Leverkusen just paid for a poor first half and it did seem sort of the last half an hour they definitely put up a bit of a fight and put put Bayern on the ropes a little bit more and got a couple of goals in that last half an hour as well but too little too late what can you yeah. say Bayern gonna Bayern as we say and uh, Bayern Munich on for the treble now of course that was their 20th DFB Pokal title their 50th domestic title a bit of uh, a bit of individual silverware I'd like to ask you about though Tete the Ballon yes, d'Or something I don't mm-hmm. usually put much weight in but um, it feels like if Bayern do win the treble, and I think they're still Champions League favourites at this point, what kind of crime would it be if Robert Lewandowski did not get the Ballon d'Or? He, he seems to be continually ignored. If my, if my memory serves me correct, he's only been in the top three once in his career. It seems to get nowhere near uh, the voting of this, of this particular individual award. Once again, not that we should put much weight in it, but this is a player who has consistently performed. He's got 51 goals on the season now. Surely yeah. has to be in with a good shout, right? I think I think it's 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 a good shout that uh, yeah, if they were to do the treble, certainly. But also that you're absolutely right that he does tend to get overlooked, despite being. I reference this every now and then. Like Chuck Klosterman once wrote an article about like the most properly rated bands. Like they're not overrated and they're not underrated. They just are rated correctly. And Robert <laughs> Lewandowski, I feel like, is that type of player that everybody acknowledges. He's a great goal scorer. He's this world class uh, forward. And yet, like, I feel like no one can really tell you, like, oh, he does this so well compared to anybody else in the world. And you don't get those highlight slaloming runs through that you kind of get with other Ballon d'Or nominees or the, the ball had eyes sort of passes when a player like Luka Modric wins it. And also, you don't really have Poland making deep runs in tournaments the way you did with Croatia. Mm. So, like, sometimes it tends to be that the Ballon d'Or values that uh, that international uh, performance as well, and then sometimes it doesn't when it's Lionel Messi. So I think you're right that like he should be in that conversation. I won't be surprised if he's not. I think because people would look at like, well, Thomas Muller's so good, and like oh, it was a breakout year for Alfonso Davies. David Alaba is such a great defender. And like you just look at the depth of that team, and somehow mm. it tends to work against him. He should be in there, though. I think you're absolutely right. So should we start that campaign now, Ryan? I'd like to. And I, I, on the note of the depth of the team working against him, it didn't seem to be a problem for Ronaldo or Messi over the years. Right? Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's strange how those two get elevated. I think just because of those sort of like individual moments where you would expect if there is a free kick in a cup final, it's going to be Ronaldo smashing into the net and then doing his celebration. Mm. It's not going to be Ronaldo doing the dummy run to then let David Alaba hit the free kick for the opening goal, which is what happens in this game. Lewandowski still gets his brace. Don't worry about that. He's going to score goals no matter what. But maybe it's those moments that don't quite work in his favor in the long term. So on that goal, on that first goal, that David Alaba free kick, which was fantastic, Sure what was. do you think about that? Was that Lewandowski like calling an audible, saying, Alaba, it's your turn to hit it? Or is it because he's a left, left-footed player on the right side of the field, that's the right thing to do? I couldn't quite work out whether that was unselfishness or that was the, the master plan all along. My, my, my amateur perspective on this, like what it would be for me if I were playing <laughs> in a team that was beating a team in a cup final, would be 
just sort of like confidence of knowing we're going to score. And so you don't have that like, it has to be me. I have to do it. I'm not sure if anybody else will. Like, I would not be surprised if it was. Yeah, it's a left footer. You can bend it in here easily. The wall seems set up in a strange way. Why don't you hit this one? But I also wouldn't be surprised if it's just like, ah, I'll get my chances later. Sure, you can have this one. That does seem to be a little bit of Bayern's like style. Maybe that's just me buying into the Bayern hype. But I wouldn't be surprised. That said, he does the stutter step run up as the decoy run. And if I'm the taker... I don't need that, but maybe it works for David Alaba. Yeah, it was, that was nicely done. I thought the little stutter. And uh, Lewandowski certainly did get his chance later on. And uh, no thanks to Leverkusen's goalkeeper, Hadreski. Is that how I pronounce his name? I believe so, yes. Hadreski. Uh, didn't do himself too much favours when he uh, faced that Robert Lewandowski shot that sort of crept in under his own body. Um, yeah. That was a very Route 1 goal with Manuel Neuer getting the assist. With uh, Manuel Neuer sort of... <laughs> hoofing the ball down the field absolutely nobody near Robert Lewandowski because why would you mark Robert Lewandowski in a in a cup final and uh, the keeper spills his lot he's just had a very speculative punt when he could have maybe taken the ball forward a bit more but hey paid off didn't it do you happen to remember the celebrations for this one because I cannot for the life of me and I feel like it tends to be when a goalkeeper gets an assist, especially this type of assist. You either get the, like, they stay there and applaud from distance, or they sprint 100 yards to celebrate because it's all about them. Do you recall what Manuel Neuer does for this one, or will we have to do the research after the show? We might have to do the research. All but right. it, uh, but I can't, uh, Robert Lewandowski's celebration, I think, was his usual humble stuff. Maybe he was of thinking, course. I'm going to do a wonderful dad dance on TikTok later. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's not talk about that anymore. No one needs to talk about dances being done on TikTok. Uh, let's instead move to La Liga. Would you rather talk Madrid or would you rather talk Barcelona first? Let's do in chronological order of Real Madrid. All right. Uh, Real Madrid uh, facing Athletic Club del Bilbao. Uh, they get the 1-0 win courtesy of a Sergio Ramos penalty. We of all course. saw it coming. The media saw it coming. The referee saw it coming, Ryan. It's a conspiracy, <laughs> isn't it? It is. And it, this, this felt like I, when I was res, uh, you know, putting together my notes for this game, I was like, hang on. This game happened four days ago, didn't it? This is like the same thing that happened against Hatafe with uh, uh-huh. you know Sergio Ramos getting a late penalty uh, to win here. But this, this, they are channeling some deep Atletico Madrid energy here, aren't they? Just yes. winning games. Yes, this are. is their third straight one nil win. This is how titles are won. This is how mm-hmm. titles are won, isn't it? And they're doing a really good job of it at the moment. Frankly, they are. Um, I mean, they, this put them seven points ahead. They're now four points ahead because of a, a the Basque game, which we'll touch on mm-hmm. shortly. But it, 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 this, 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 you know, Atletico Bilbao. It's a cliche. It's a very difficult place to go and get a win, fans or no fans, and they pulled it off. And yep. I think they did a really good job. This felt like maybe a kind of Ramos penalty late kind of game from the mm-hmm. start. And there was some VAR controversy, which I think we can touch on as well. But another really solid performance from Real Madrid, I'd say, particularly the back line. Particularly Luka Modric. They always seem to have one midfield star that stands out in each game, and it was Luka Modric's turn in this one. He was pretty fabulous, wasn't he? Did you see that nutmeg? Uh, I, I did. Luka Modric is consistently <laughs> excellent, despite, as Graham Ruffin pointed out on last week's show, being sort of surplus to requirements that it, it stands to reason he will be one of the ones that they move on. There were reports today that they're trying to move on between one and 400 players in their squad to clear up some <laughs> roster space, to clear up some salary issues, to get a little bit more money, and then maybe they reinvest in January or next summer. I'm sure they'll do some investing this time around. But Luka Modric is a strange player that continues to perform very well at a very high level and is simultaneously seems to always be uh, like transfer listed or like, do you want to make us an offer? Are you interested in this guy? We'll let him go. So I don't quite know how he's able to exist in those dual roles, but he is and he does it pretty well. Yeah, and that nutmeg wasn't obviously, it was, it was um, an absolutely fantastic nutmeg that he pulled off. Was it on uh, a Hein Sanchez? I'm not sure how to pronounce um, Basque I'm letting so. you do all the uh, uh, pronouncing today. It was on that guy, and yeah, um, it was very good. And there was just other li- little moments where it showed like this team has almost got this telepathy going on. There was this mm-hmm. really sort of low um, daisy cutting pass that he played that Ramos. Um, sort of jumped and led it through his legs and then Marcelo got it and it was just like oh mm-hmm. wonderful stuff really really good teamwork and this this Real Madrid team just look absolutely solid at the moment don't they 
They absolutely do. And and to your earlier point, like, yes, there are some there's some speculation about favorable calls or about VAR. And I do think things can be two things that, yes, they're getting some calls, not to say unfairly, but they're definitely getting calls that you would expect a team that has so much possession and so many attacking chances will end up getting. But it is also the case that they're adjusting accordingly because Athletic Club do sit pretty deep. They do frustrate Madrid. Madrid still try to play through them in the first half, play centrally through them in the first half. And I think also we're afraid of getting hit on the break. They didn't want to concede any ground. They didn't want to risk conceding a goal, and now they really have to stretch themselves and maybe have to get another one, and then suddenly we have a title race again or a closer title race again. But I think in the second half, Zidane sees the way this game is going, and you can see it from the outset that there are more numbers committed forward. Luka Modric is crashing into the box. Uh, It's not just three wide across the top. You've got numbers Mm. central, but you still have the width that you need, and they continue to kind of pump those balls in, and that is where the penalty comes from. So I think looking at the way they adapted to this, like, yes, it's a grind-out win, and that is what you have to do as champions, but as champions, you also have to adjust your style and be able to make tactical changes be flexible to get that result in the first place. So I think it can do both things. I also saw an argument by Sid Lowe today in The Guardian that I had not previously seen that Madrid were, were obviously doing well this season and were in contention to win the title. But his argument, or just maybe like a little bit of speculation, was that once this competition, once we have the restart and it feels a bit more like a knockout competition because there's nothing else happening, it's, it's games so consistently that it almost feels like, oh, we've played one game home, now we're playing the other game away, and now we have the next leg and the next leg that yeah. Real Madrid thrive in that sort of knockout round competition. It's why they've won three Champions Leagues, but only what, like a few La Liga titles in the last 12 years? Like, so maybe there's an argument to be made that as soon as it feels more like a knockout competition, Madrid then perform as though it's a knockout competition and win on penalties courtesy of Sergio Ramos. That's a really great point. I like that a lot. And it, once again, it makes me think how Real Madrid are like ninth favorites to win the Champions League this season. <laughs> you just can't sleep on them like that. And, they, you know, they've got to get past the Manchester City team who lost to Southampton at the weekend. I think there's there's definitely some <laughs> some uh, room for Real Madrid to get past them there. And, but yeah, j- just a really good performance. Do you want to talk about the, the penalty and the sure. controversy around it? So the uh, it was Marcelo who won it, wasn't it? Was it Danny yes. Garcia, I think, stepped on his foot but also correct. in the same sweeping motion, seems to win the ball with his other foot. How, yeah. do, how do you feel about that? I think if you're, if you're ta- even if you get the ball, I always go back to uh, an indoor ref I had once where a, a person screamed, I got the ball! And his response was like, yeah, you got the ball by going through the player. And I think if the contact is with the player first and then the ball second, even if it's not what you meant to do, it's why you'll see those other penalties given when the player goes to clear the ball, doesn't know another player is there, misses the ball and hits the player, and that ends up being a penalty. Even if it's not the intent, even if you sort of get the ball, if you get the man first, I understand why it's a penalty but then i do understand why there's some hard feeling about later on in this game when sergio ramos Mm. sort of does the same thing and that call doesn't get given so he treads on yeah so later in the game sergio ramos treads on raul garcia's foot in the Mm -hmm. box and it's not just a i'm running back and i tread on your foot he extends the leg and appears to do it on purpose i I would argue i would argue that's the case uh this one wasn't even var reviewed Mm. So when the people who criticize Real Madrid for getting favorable decisions do so, this is the kind of thing that adds weight to it. And Zidane said Mm -hmm. afterwards, I cannot accept hearing that we are top of the table because of referees' decisions. We deserve more respect for what we're doing. And I'm tired of people saying we're winning because of referees. Uh, Josep Bartomeu, Barcelona president, said, VAR always favors the same people. It's not equal. So some people pretty mad about this, but... It does seem like the cards have fallen in Real Madrid's favor a little bit in this situation, does it not? I think you're allowed to say that. I think Bartomeu, that's a little pot kettle (laughs) to me. Um, As though Barcelona haven't gotten their fair share of leniency. It's why why they are, I believe, legally obligated to have 15 players surround the official at any given point. True. Uh, Yeah, I mean, and so, but I think that, like, this is what happens, right? That you tend to, especially when you have, like, 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 I guess not state, but, like, regional media, you're going to have some newspapers pointing out that, like, they get all these favorable calls. You're going to get other ones pointing out that they're grinding out wins. But when they're grinding them out as opposed to winning comprehensively and looking really, really fun and winning 3-0, maybe it lends itself more to that. Well, are they getting favorable decisions narrative? And that's where we end up. So I think there are like 
I understand the frustration there, and it is Sergio Ramos, which always then makes it a bit more of like, what, what was was it nefarious? Was it something odd? But at the end of the day, I think it's also that Madrid, with how many numbers they're committing forward, with the possession stats, with the shot stats, as you mentioned, mm. like I think maybe that referee is going to look at it as being like, that maybe was a fluke moment that he didn't know was happening. This one felt like a long time coming, so I'm going to give that penalty. I doubt referees ever do that math, but I am not quite as outraged. I'm not outraged at all, in fact, about this one. Uh, you sound Ryan, very relaxed. outrage meter? Where no, are you? No, I'm, I'm, I'm very relaxed. My blood right. pressure is uh, hovering around its usual low point. I will say, though, blood pressure for Real Madrid fans should be mm-hmm. higher in their coming games. They've got four games left. Uh, Alaves, Granada, Villarreal, Le I can see them taking maximum points from all those games, Tete. However, mm-hmm. in their next game, Sergio Ramos, uh, for earning his billionth yellow card of his yep. career, is uh, suspended for yellow card accumulation. So where are they going to get their 70th minute penalty from, huh? How's it's a good happen? question. It's, who's going to take it? Yeah, more yeah. to the point. Because uh, it'll be Ramos and Danny Carvajal. So two of that starting yeah. four suspended for the next game against uh, Alaves, as you said. My money would be on either Karim Benzema or Luka Modric if I needed somebody to step and take a penalty that wasn't Sergio Ramos. Because it has been Sergio Ramos pretty much since Cristiano Ronaldo left. Yeah. Uh, I think, though, I would back Benzema to be just sort of efficient and calmly uh, murder that ball and give his team the lead. Did you see the quote? I don't have it in front of me, but Ramos said something like, I operate best in high-tension situations. That's what makes me perfect for penalties. I love that. Can you imagine I, I being did the th- not, but that does seem possible, except I feel like I also think of him as getting red cards, and that doesn't feel like the best possible yeah. performance in a high-octane situation. <laughs> exactly. He's, he's quite the opposite in many high-tension <laughs> situations. He creates much more tension, and that has a negative effect. But maybe, just, maybe that's it. Maybe that's his philosophy, is I'll cause even more attention, and then I'm in control of the tension. That makes sense. <laughs> but to have that mindset to think, you know, when everything's calm, I'm not quite at my peak. I need some, I need some, you know, some tension to, to yep. rare you know to get things going here that's how i operate at my peak i think that's a pretty fascinating uh, insight into sergio ramos's psyche and perhaps why he's such a good and consistent excellent center back slasher supporting supporting attacker for this team mm-hmm. and and uh relevant tattoo haver uh the same sid Lowe article pointed out i think he has like i control my own desti- destiny written on his ribs so uh. i guess he got that written himself so that makes sense and then yeah he controls his own destiny when he scores the penalties Although when you're not on the field because of your own actions, then I guess he controlled his destiny too. It all it all checks out, Ryan. It all checks out. Anything else from Madrid's victory? I was just thinking about that tattoo now. Wouldn't it be wonderful if that was misspelled? That'd be the ultimate irony, wouldn't it? It really, really would. Almost <laughs> to the point where I would give him more credit for it being misspelled. We'll have to go and check. Uh, until we do that, though, more post-show research to be done. We still have Serie A to talk, and when I think of Italy, I think, you know, like stylish, well-groomed people, and that's why we've got Manscaped as a sponsor today, because we're going to be talking about full-body grooming. Uh, Manscaped have you covered. If you want to get rid of unsightly ear or nose hair, they've got you there. Uh, If maybe you don't like your chest hair, I keep mine, but if you don't want yours, uh, they have a trimmer for that. And then, of course, if you want to maybe keep things a bit more maintained down south, they can certainly help you there, Uh, especially with their Lawnmower 3.0, which is waterproof and cordless. Uh, so you could use that in the shower. It is the best trimmer on the market for those of you in need of a shave. Uh, the third-generation trimmer features skin-safe technology to reduce manscaping accidents. Nobody wants those. You could also maybe go with their crop cleanser, which helps keep your hair and skin healthy. It's an all-in-one formula, so it's good for healthy chest hair as it is for your skin. Uh, you want both of those. Definitely want some skin. Definitely have to have some hair. For a limited time, subscribers can get two free gifts, the Shed Travel Bag, which is a $39 value, uh, and the patented high-performance reduced chafing manscaped boxer briefs uh, plus 20% off and free shipping with the code TSS20 at manscaped.com. 20% off, free shipping, free travel bag, free manscaped boxer briefs at manscaped.com using the code TSS20. Do yourself a favor, always use the right tools for the job. Uh, let's talk Villarreal, Barcelona, Barcelona with a 4-1 to win. Barcelona winning, winning games, scoring goals, and looking happy. Ryan, it's a weird world we live in. It is indeed. This looks like a completely different team to the yep. uh, Barcelona that we've seen recently. And lots of uh, people attributing this to the... Uh, it looked like a 4-3-1-2. Maybe it's a 4-4-2 diamond. But basically having... Um, mm-hmm. 
it was Messi as a sort of attacking midfielder yep. behind Luis Suarez and Antoine Griezmann. So Messi sort of in the whole of time, those two. And it seems like a sort of system that might also quite benefit the um, De Jong uh, when he comes into the system as mm-hmm. well. It means that Antoine Griezmann isn't stuck out wide as he has been. And it means that, you know, Suarez and Griezmann can play off one another. And it seems like that worked pretty darn good for this team in this instance. Absolutely. It reminds me of those like uh, one Roman Raquelme teams of we're going four three one two. 2 The three will work really, really hard. B, be good on the ball and keeping possession, but we will make up for the one, in this case, little Messi, not having to do anything that he doesn't really feel like doing. And then, yeah, to your point, you have Griezmann, who we know historically, especially with Atleti, likes that 4-4-2. He wants to be part of a, stri- a partnership, mm. and it's not even like he needs somebody who is his exact style, so he can have a, a lot of pace and, and quick passing and interchange between the two. He he thrived with Diego Costa. He doesn't need that level of mobility. He needs someone to play off of, and with Luis Suarez, that feels like an ideal counterpart. In a lot of ways, it's insane to me that it took this long for this to be the formation, because it does seem like it fits all three of their skill sets and puts them in their best possible positions, and then you have Arturo Vidal and Sergio Roberto in there, Sergio Busquets doing Sergio Busquets things. If nothing else for Barca fans, this, this does seem like a way that you can keep Griezmann, not have to sell him, not admit that that was a mistake, and still get goals and get positive performances. And yet, apparently, they still want to buy Neymar this summer. What a crazy world we live in. I still don't quite understand the uh, the the math behind that for a team that had to um, uh, furlough a lot of its staff during this time. But hey, there we are. Um, But that's beside the point. The point being that this is uh, a very much more positive performance for Barcelona. They'd they'd created lots of chances. Uh, You know, that first half performance particularly, if they play like that, um, against Napoli in the Champions League, you'd think that that would be enough to, to get them through that encounter. Um, Leo Messi having lots of good shots as well, lots of good chances um, at that late free mm-hmm. kick, which I seem to remember, and which uh, we've got to give a lot of credit to Villarreal's uh, goalkeeper because he was a very busy man during this game. And Tinho, um, I think it is. Yeah. I'll go with the pronunciation this time. Very good, very good. I'll, mm-hmm. uh, I'll keep you to that one. And um, yeah, he, he seemed to sort of prevent another five Barcelona goals yep. going in. I will say, though, this wasn't a perfect Barcelona performance, and there still were some indications of their problems, mainly, you know, that Moreno uh, goal for Villarreal yep. sort of indicating that they do play a dangerously high back line and that uh, their players aren't necessarily suited to it with, you know, uh, he, he, Moreno completely outgasses Gerard Piquet for that, for, on that break. Uh, you know. So I couldn't remember if, if it was Moreno or Alcazar who's played in, because it's Moreno who finishes. But either way, I take your point that it's basically a direct ball and yeah. Barcelona are not in the position they need to be in. I might disagree with you a little bit about the high line, but we can talk <gasps> about that. I don't want st- to I don't want to step on what you're saying. First. Saboteur, Taylor. <laughs> All right, I look forward to that one. But yeah, my point being that, still, yeah, Piquet let his man... Uh, get a, get a jump on mm-hmm. him, and you had that sort of chip chip pass coming into a completely unmarked uh, uh, Santi Cazorla in the box. Love seeing him still playing, by the way. That's amazing at the top level. And then it was Moreno, as you say, who put in the rebound. I think he was the one who started that movement by uh, okay. on the break. I'll have to go back and check that. Um, I'm willing to be corrected, but and also the the way that Moreno got the ball uh, to put the ball in the back of it from the rebound was that Arturo Vidal was just hanging out. He yeah. ran back into the box uh, and leaves leaves Moreno unmarked on the edge of the six. Uh, it's like, if you're going to come back, maybe pick up a man, Arturo Vidal. What was he doing in that situation? It just seemed like that was uh, in- indicative of the fact that Barcelona, you know, th- th- this is a lot more positive and there's much more positivity going up at the other end of the field, but they can still be got at. I, I think... I think I have a partial explanation for what Vidal is doing, and I think it has to do with how much distance he has to cover. And I think this is where I say that I know what you mean when you say that it's Barca's high line that, like, it is an issue here that you don't have the pace and long lay and uh, Gerard Piquet to win a foot race. But I would argue, if you go back and watch this, that it's Busquets has, has moved forward, and I think there's a good maybe... 20 yards or so is about what I would say, maybe 15, but even so. And and it's Langley and PK are maybe 10 to 15 yards inside their own half. And I think that they need to step even higher because if they step 10 yards forward, if they're at midfield, 
then you have to cut, drop even deeper if you're Villarreal. It's more distance to cover, certainly, but it's also just that maybe you're more likely to be offside. You're not going to get quite that run, especially not through the middle. And to me, if anything, this was, I think, still the same idea. It's Pique and Langley maybe not backing themselves, maybe just wanting that little cushion so they can make up the ground. But if the team is exploiting that cushion by standing right on you, then you're just giving them freedom to run and stay on side at the same time. And I think that this was almost maybe Pique and Langley not quite believing that the system was going to work, not quite maybe doing what they were asked to do and I have to believe they were supposed to be a little bit higher up and just weren't so it still indicates the same thing which is that you don't have that defensive cohesion you want maybe just in a different way but the same way at the same time so I think it all works out yeah okay I'll take that one um (laughs) (laughs) just to just to touch back on Anton Griezmann as well um please obviously had a wonderful game here that finish um from the 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 Leo Messi back for the third goal Anton Griezmann's goal a Messi back heel assist take that Kareem Benzema I can do that too uh and just a wonderful finish where it grazes off the top of the crossbar which I believe Leo Messi did himself from almost exactly the same location against uh, Real Betis uh last season was it last season I forget all seasons meld into one at the moment but um that was wonderful but also, for the first goal, uh, which was credited as an, uh, as an own goal, mm-hmm. the run that Anton Griezmann does, yep. I, it, it, it spoke to me of Erling Haaland. It was a kind of run that Erling Haaland gets credited for, and the way he sort of forces the own goal, his positioning, he runs towards the ball and across the face of the goal. And I thought that he deserved a lot more credit for his, for his positioning than perhaps people um, gave him at the, at the time. Because there's something to be said for, like, half second adjustments and that is you're absolutely right that what Grisman does is he first goes central then he makes that sort of shifts his weight starts to move towards the near post but then shifts back Mm. and is in that position to even if it isn't an own goal I think is going to get that sort of reverse inside of the foot into the goal uh, that we I think we call that a Billy Baldwin because it's not quite as good as Alec Baldwin it's not a full Cruyff turn (laughs) Um, I think that's how we landed on that one I always forget the origin of that term but yeah his movement and that he is so alive to it I also think that he's probably not that that excited for that ball if he is further out wide, certainly. Yeah. And again, I think this shows you when you put them in the positions that they're comfortable in, you're going to see those goals. Same thing with Luis Suarez. It's an amazing finish. It's a bending one from distance with power behind it, but it's a great Luis Suarez finish. The fourth goal as well, I think you mentioned this one. It's just really good quick passing. It's incisive passing Mm. that involves what Messi to Vidal to Sergi back to Messi for like a good in-step finish. Not an easy finish, but not the most difficult of finishes, but it still is the sort of Barcelona move, 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 move the ball. Mm -hmm. You don't really necessarily move yourself, but you somehow end up wide open, even if you're Lionel Messi. I think we saw all of the strengths of Barcelona, maybe a couple of weaknesses, is, but we might not get the title rates we wanted. Barcelona still have, what, four games? We got Espanyol, Valladolid, Osasuna, and Alaves. No team in the top half of the table, so we'd expect them to get full points, but as you said, uh, Alaves for Real Madrid, uh, 15th, Granada, 10th, Villarreal, 5th, Leganes, 19th. So a more difficult run-in for Real Madrid, but you would expect them to at most drop a couple points, which won't be enough for Barcelona. But if you're a Barcelona fan, maybe a bit more optimism now than you certainly had at this point last week, if nothing else. Yeah, a little bit more hope going into the summer, a little bit more hope going into this uh, forthcoming Champions League competition that Real Madrid are also going to win. So um, it's it's an interesting (laughs) time for them. But yeah, they, they can take a lot of positives from this game and... Just some wonderful finishing as well, as we mentioned there with uh, with Griezmann's goal. And also Fatty's goal, you mentioned at the end there. It was a no-look finish. I didn't realize until afterwards of watching, watching it back. It, it, it was a no-look finish from him. Incredible stuff. As, oh, as wow. Ray Hudson said at the time, it was beautiful and it should be on the back of a truck's mud flap. He has to write them down, right? He has to have some sort of list. of Because he had another one like sharper than a hypodermic needle like he brings them out so fast i can't imagine he's like bringing these up on the fly so have you seen arlo white he posts them on twitter quite a lot he's sort of um really nerdy boards that he puts up with all the yes. players and all their stats i imagine ray hudson's got one of those just with uh, similes and metaphors uh just all <laughs> over the one for um for, for the griezmann goal he said that was as delicate and soft as a slug's beer belly that one needs work. what that does that even work. mean i yeah. thought about that for so long of like <laughs> To, would a beer belly be soft and delicate? Like it would definitely be like soft, but like like thick. I don't. It's just. It's. I really. They're so good that they make you think, which is probably why they end up standing out point. more than any other commentators' analogies. That is the point. You don't need to worry about whether a slug actually imbibes beer or not. It's just enjoyable. 
I can't imagine it would be good for them. I can't imagine it would be good for them. One more league uh, to discuss, uh, Ryan. Let's talk Serie A for a moment in which Juve win. Uh, the other teams that matter do not in terms of the title race. Uh, Juve now with a seven-point lead. Stands to reason they're going to comfortably uh, finish on top. You had Lazio dropping points. They lose 3-0 to AC Milan, a resurgent Milan. There are reasons to be excited about Serie A for... Maybe the end of this season, but certainly the start of next season. And yet, Ryan, I feel like it's the, the league that you and I are always like, should we cover Serie A? Is there a game? Like, maybe there's a derby. Maybe it's like Juve Lazio. We'll do that. Daryl, I'm going to throw him under the bus here. Never really that interested in talking about Serie A. And I think my question that I would like to get into uh, as we close this show is, why do you think that is? Why do you think it is that for us, and it seems like for some, for some slash a lot of maybe English-American media, you don't get as much Serie A coverage? I thought about this long and hard, Tay-Tay, and I can't quite put my finger on it because, you know, there's lots of entertaining games in Syria. Mm -hmm. There's lots of fantastic players and there's performances like this Milan one, which came out of the blue against Lazio um, at the uh, the Stadio Olimpico. You know, the sort of thing that you, the the reason you watch soccer is for performances like this. And and this um, Milan team have got a lot to look forward to next season. Perhaps we can touch on that later. But it's it's odd because... Certainly people of mine and Daryl's age, we were, we were brought up in the UK on Serie A. When there was no Premier League, you had to have an expensive fancy Sky subscription to watch Premier League or top flight soccer in the UK. Everyone watched Serie A because it was live on terrestrial television and everyone knew everybody. And I was obsessed with it in the late 90s and going to, to the early 2000s. And so it just dropped away. And mm-hmm. I can't quite. Can you, can you, can you, I'm lying on your couch here and you're psychoanalyzing mm-hmm. me. Tell me why. Well, a question for you. When you would watch it in the 90s growing up, were there English players that you gravitated towards that were playing in the league? There was David Platt, I think that, and Paul Gascoigne. Paul Gascoigne was at Lazio as well, but that's yeah. about it, I think. So I do think that, for me at least, is part of it, that you, you certainly have fewer Americans uh, in the top flight. I'm not even sure you have a single American in the top flight. Uh, you have some in Serie B, some in Serie C, but I think contrast that with the Bundesliga. I think mm. it's why we give that one so much coverage, because you have Americans there. Same thing with the Premier League, on top of the fact that it's just the biggest league in the United States. I think that factors into it. So I think the lack of sort of Americans or English players is probably part of it. Like I, I, feel, like, I feel like it stands to reason that the most coverage Serie A got, got recently was when Joe Hart went to Torino, uh, <laughs> at least from an English tabloid standpoint. But then you also have, I think, Juventus. They're just consistent dominance. Unless you have a team that's really running them close, you can kind of always bank on Juve to win, and Juve to win with Ronaldo. And unless yeah. you really like Ronaldo, that is another thing. That if, if you don't love Ronaldo, there's a decent chance you really dislike him. And so you're not really going to tune in to watch Juve. You're not going to be as excited to watch them as you might be, say, Napoli winning a title. So I think the kind of consistent nature of Juve winning combined with some of the players they have on their team is probably part of it. I think it's also, it is a sad thing that this tends to be a thing that we talk about when it comes to Italy and Serie A, but it is the reality is racism. That there's also how many stories where they're coming out of Italy with fans, with fan racism, when Lukaku responds, his own fans say like, oh no, this is just how it is. And I think to talk about Serie A, there is that feeling of like, do we then have to mention that? There's also a decent chance that in any given game, there's going to be stuff like that. And Serie A fans won't like it. We tend to get some negative responses whenever we mention those things, but it, it's the case. And yeah. it, it, I think those couple of things make it a little bit harder to watch. Running tracks don't help either. Dr. Rockwell, how much do I owe you for this session? That was good. I think you've, <laughs> you've pretty much solved my problem. Except I'm pretty sure therapy isn't supposed to be your therapist telling you what's wrong with you for the first 50 minutes of the session. And then you say, oh, okay, how much do I pay you? Uh, oh. Although, if so, I'm, I, I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> I've been doing it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, you mentioned maybe Milan being an exciting team. There is obviously exciting players. Uh, you could watch Roma and get Chris Smalling if you want your England fix. But yep. for Milan, uh, it's a 3 0 win, as I said, over Lazio. It's a, a deflected but still great goal from Chalanolu. You have a penalty from Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Maybe he's not the one to be most excited about. Then you have Ante Rebic coming in for Zlatan, getting the third goal. But lots of young. Young players in there, and including Conti, the defender uh, yeah. for Milan, who I always want to say is Antonio Conte resurrected, but it's not. Uh, are Are you excited about this Milan team at all, Ryan? Having had the conversation we just had about Serie, a? yeah, the, the, my 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 uh, my heart is racing more than thinking of the peril <laughs> of that uh, Real Madrid situation we mentioned earlier. I say, yeah. I'd say it's, it's um this is a this was a fun team to watch this was a great game to watch um i think the milan fans haven't had much to look forward to in the past few seasons maybe their decline also 
um, coincides with yeah, my that is less interest in true. Serie A. That's interesting to think about as well. But, you know, this is a team that with um, Stefano Pioli hasn't reached the heights, but looks like it's heading in the right direction right now. And, you know, when you've got some Rebic and Ibrahimovic fighting for that top spot and you've got you know, Bonaventura is a, a great supporting player. I like the way that Pioli has been using his fullbacks. Tio Hernandez is really fun and sort of mm-hmm. has the freedom to get into these central positions to, to get a goal or two as well. Forgot about Tio Hernandez. Yeah, he's great fun. And and this is a team that's the speculation suggests that Ralph Ranić is going to be coming in in the summer and he's going to be right. having a quite a big transfer kitty. 75 million euros is the figure being floated out there. When you look at that and you look at the way they've taken apart a Lazio team who are gunning for their first title in 20 years, albeit a Lazio team that wasn't full strength. They didn't have Ciro Chirino Mobile or uh, mm-hmm. Felipe Cicedo, uh and you know basically a deflected goal and a penalty that was almost saved made the difference in this game arguably. But still that's a solid result for Milan mm-hmm. and I, I think some some the Rossoneri fans have a lot of positives here. All right, I, I like I like to get on the positive note because yeah, you have everything you mentioned about Milan should be reason for optimism. Inter, obviously, despite dropping points this weekend, they're spending money. Uh, they we would expect will be uh, as strong, if not stronger, next season. And then Atalanta, who are definitely very likely, <laughs> I'll say, to secure that uh, final Champions League spot. Yeah. They're 15 points ahead of fifth place Napoli. So unless something goes catastrophically wrong <laughs> and catastrophically right for Napoli, I think things can go catastrophically right. We would assume Atalanta stay uh, in the Champions League places. They've won their last five straight games. I find Atalanta to be one of the most fun teams to watch in European soccer just because uh, I like a player like similar to what we were talking about with Lionel Messi when Papu Gomez can just do whatever he wants and yet they still score goals and still look pretty pretty solid defensively, mm. uh, I will take that. So, okay, I think we've talked ourselves into uh, a re like reignited Milan derby will be fun, Atalanta doing things, Juve still we would expect being very good, and then maybe if other teams can close that gap, maybe next season is the year that we get really excited about uh, Serie A. We shall see. We does shall that sound see. good to you, Mr. Uh, Bailey? That does sound good. Maybe we should be firing up ESPN Plus more often than we do, Tay-Tay. Okay. All right. All right. Well, maybe we can talk about that as the season concludes and certainly into next season. But for now, Ryan Bailey, uh, thank you very much for taking all the time to talk England, Germany, Spain, and Italy with me. Why, thank you. It's always a pleasure. Never a chore. 